Hello and welcome to Arcadis at MIPIM, a special series of five programmes focusing on the future of real estate. We'll hear about the buildings we live and work in and the biggest challenges facing our cities. Today, we're playing politics. How much can you get done when those in City Hall have other plans or the next election to win? This is probably why some eccentrics are getting voted in because people are bored. We'll hear from a former senior figure in the British government and a political consultant from Germany about how huge challenges such as Covid and climate change don't respect borders or party politics. What we need to do is reshape capitalism so that we use the market to decarbonise our economy and get the investment we need to do that. If a mayor has a very progressive and a very strong agenda, like the previous mayor, things get done, change happens, and progress is made. Plus, we'll explore how the private and public sector can work together to learn and grow from a crisis. That's all ahead on Arcadis at MIPIM. And a very warm welcome to today's programme. Covid and climate change, two drastic, urgent emergencies facing our cities. Pledges and promises have been flowing freely from all quarters to build back better, from our politicians, our planners and the people who run our businesses. The will is certainly there, but when it comes to getting things done, what role can those who govern our cities and our nations play? Well, to discuss this, I'm delighted to say that today I'm joined by... Hi, I'm John Batten. I'm the Global Cities Director at Arcadis. Nicholas Hill. I'm member of the Board of Directors I'm in a political consultancy agency based in Brussels, Berlin, Hamburg and Cologne. Gavin Barwell. I'm a strategic advisor to Arcadis and a former chief of staff to Prime Minister Theresa May in the UK. Welcome all to Arcadis, gentlemen. Now, the biggest challenges facing our cities. Nicholas, let me begin with you. You have immediate urgent examples in Germany. You have the floods. Crises like that and COVID, they don't respect borders or political parties, do they? No, absolutely not. In July, we had a torrential rainfall, which um, led to extreme floodings in Germany and Belgium, as you know, and um, hundreds of people died. And many more had to evacuate their homes and many cities were permanently destroyed, or at least parts of them are still destroyed. And if you just have a look at this one single incident, the private insurance sector reckons that we have approximately a damage of 7 billion euros and the state government funds the damages by 30 billion euros. And that takes a focus on the incidents which we have to deal with in future much more probably as Germany was strongly affected for the first time in 2018 by heat waves as well. And in very lately been published risk index, Germany ranked third among the countries most heavily impacted by extreme weather events, which you usually wouldn't expect. At least I didn't, right after Japan and the Philippines. So this is quite a big incident for everybody and not just for one political party or one government which is in power right now. And Gavin, once you have a crisis that is often followed by stronger, more doomsday warnings about the long-term effects on a city. This goes right back to even when you were at school. Yes, I think um, all cities go through sort of periods when they're on the up or periods when they're in the down and the the doom-mongers are in holding sway. I can remember when I was 13, 14, maybe in the mid-1980s, we were set a project about what we should do with all the spare space there was going to be in London as it continued to depopulate. 
which even 10 years later, when I started working in government, was just horrendously out of date. The population at that point had started, had rebounded and was growing very rapidly. And John, you live in a city, New York City, which is repeatedly being told that it is facing the apocalypse. I mean, it is a regular subject of disaster movies. Every decade, the prediction of New York's impending death, that gong is hit. I've lived through you know, the New York City bankruptcy of the 70s, the crack epidemic of the 80s, the 9-11 terrorist attack of 2000s, and now the COVID pandemic. Each time, the pundits would say, this is it, New York is done, it's, it's history, urban flight proceeds. But it's always followed up by economic re- resurgence and rebirth. And there was a great quote in, the, in one of our local newspapers the other day, which says, real New Yorkers need to earn their inheritance and reimagine our city in a post-pandemic way. So you're right, Emma, it's always a reoccurring theme in the city of New York. How much has the likes of COVID divided New York City, John? Uh, we have a socially conscious government, the mayor's office, Mayor Bill de Blasio, and I really believe the vaccination rollout has really been very equitable in terms of access for the citizens. It really not so much the citizens, there's a whole program where the citizens can come to the vaccination sites, but there's equally a lot of programs where the vaccination sites go into the neighborhoods where there is less interest or less demand. So I think New York City has actually done a pretty good job in their responses to the inequities caused by COVID. Gavin, let's introduce now the question of politics. We've just heard stories of cities faced with catastrophe and reinventing themselves and emerging stronger. But when you're in the teeth of a crisis, you have intense competition for resources, for power and arguments over the direction to take, both short and long term. You can't take politics out of a city, can you? No, I mean, I suppose the the fundamental question is the extent to which a city has the power it needs to regenerate itself. And certainly in the UK, historically, we've had a very centralised political system with central government holding most of the leaders. That has begun to change, starting with London and then rolling out to the other big cities. We're now seeing US-style directly elected mayors introduced who have more power. But I would still say, compare both to the US and most European countries, cities in the UK do not have the same level of autonomy and power over their own future. And Nicholas, what difference does regional autonomy make? Germany is often praised for having such a structure. Well, at least I would say we were able, as for instance, a free and Hanseatic city of Hamburg, as we call ourselves, to start off certain concepts to be prepared for extreme weather conditions to start off with this one topic as we have our own flood management because we needed to because the city is built right around a big river we have twice as many bridges as amsterdam and venice in total so we always had to deal with that gavin nicholas there speaks about local governments knowing regions, knowing cities and their specific needs. This isn't always the case, is it? Especially here in the United Kingdom. Arguably, that was shown up very clearly during the pandemic, where conflicts emerged between central government and the regions and cities. And some suspected that some of the decisions in public health and economy were strongly motivated by politics. Yeah, I think, I mean, first of all, you have a, you have a culture in the UK politically, which is much more centralised. So we have a national health system. And if the papers ever uncover any evidence that people are getting any kind of different service 
in one part of the country than somewhere else. It's described in the UK as a postcode lottery. So you've got that underlying political culture. And I think initially the government tried to do everything itself. You know, we had a lot of problems with test and trace system, particularly the trace side of it, where they didn't initially make use of local public health teams and tried to design their own system. I think they learnt uh, as they went through the pandemic. But you also, as you say, had some examples of sort of standoffs between the Conservative government and some of the Labour mayors around the country, most notably Mayor Burnham in Greater Manchester. So there was definitely some politics involved there as well, yes. And it was arguably a political decision. I mean, how how much does politics and the, the difficulties associated with that hold back a city's recovery in your opinion, John? Well, as just Gavin described, that political discord and misalignment between federal and local and state politics, that drama has played out throughout the pandemic uh, in North America as well uh, in my city. So that's not an unusual occurrence, unfortunately. Political will is what really ultimately gets us out of these jams and moves us into a more positive direction and resulting in economic uplift. We're beginning, I believe, to see that alignment now between the Biden administration in Washington and our state and local uh, administrations. But exactly as Gavin describes, Emma, is it, it takes place in the U.S. as well. Well, let's look at the U.S. and the way that politics shapes a city. I mean, it's a few weeks since Andrew Cuomo's downfall in New York. And a recent article um, in the Financial Times said that you know he's the latest hyper-aggressive man felled by scandal in state politics. But it also said that as a ruthless, domineering bully, those were adjectives that friends and admirers said about him, that he was a hyper-aggressive man, but he got things done. What about the strong man or indeed strong woman approach? It's a strong mayor form of government, and we're seeing more and more strong mayor forms of government exist. So the city council is, is subordinate to the mayor. And if a mayor has a very progressive and a very strong agenda, like the previous mayor, Things get done. Change happens. Progress is made. The work that was done in Times Square, where the zoning issues changed and accommodated a whole mixed uh, lifestyle there. Things happen when strong mayors have strong agendas and programs. Gavin, let's bring in the issue of how this affects cities directly. What we've just talked about is a suggestion of political leadership, political strength. How does this translate into the way that this affects a city? You, you have this constant political need for re-election. And as a result, arguably, short-termism tends to get in the way of, of long-term success and healing. So, so that's definitely a problem with our democratic politics. Electoral cycles mean politicians have to be relatively short-term focused. And it tends to mean that the issues that are most difficult to deal with are the ones that are much more long-term particularly if there isn't a cross-party consensus. I think if you take the UK on climate change, there's a pretty good cross-party consensus. So policy advances and is broadly supported by both parties. But if you take something like social care in the UK for, for elderly people, we've had years when everyone's known that we need to reform how that works, but it doesn't happen because the time to get, you know, the political payback for doing the right thing is too long. That's one factor. I think the other thing I would say is I always think there's too much focus on the personality types of politics. You, you were asking the previous question, you know, do you need to be a bully to get things done? I think actually what, what political leaders need to get things done is, is political power, and that comes from their popularity. Now, whether it's a president in the US or whether it's a prime minister 
in the UK, if you're riding high in the polls or if on the particular issue where you're trying to drive through changes, the public are behind you, then your political opponents are going to take note of that and you're more likely to be able to make progress. But to come back to your original question, you know, many of the things cities depend upon for their success, but the power is in the hands of politicians. If you want reform, clearly political leadership is a key ingredient. Sometimes countries or cities can do well despite their politicians, but but to really, you know, to get the maximum performance, you, you clearly need the right policies in place at city level. John, how does this affect your work at Arcadis? It's an interesting point. You know, we have this large federal infrastructure stimulus bill that's in the process of being approved in Washington. And um, there is a program that Arcadis is leading called Creating a Resilient Lower Manhattan in the Financial District and the Seaport. And it was conceived before in the previous federal administration, more as a commercial real estate shoreline extension project, another Battery Park City approach. But now with the Biden administration in place, the infrastructure bill really talking much more about social inclusion, it's been pivoted politically to become a project that protects and connects lower Manhattan to the rest of the boroughs and opens up the shoreline to be a place to attract the citizens of New York. So it's a really subtle, but really a good example, as Gavin points out, how political short-term changes reflect the moods and the flow of investment into a city, which cities require and and depend on. Gavin, are there any examples that people could turn to to see where the relationship between politics and the city has been a good one and great things have been done? So I think, you know, if I, if I can take my home city as an example, I think in London, when, when the morality was introduced, the first two mayors we had were Ken Livingstone and Boris Johnson. Difficult to think of two personalities who could be more different, come from very different political traditions. But I think that they both were able to demonstrate how having a strong executive mayor with a with clear popular mandate behind them was actually able to deliver real lasting positive change for London. Whatever your politics, I think you'd be hard-pressed to argue London wasn't left in a better place after both their moralities than, than what they inherited. And you're with Arcadis at MIPIM, where today we're talking about the relationship between politics and cities. And I'm joined by Nicholas Hill, political consultant from Hamburg, Gavin Barwell, who's a strategic advisor to Arcadis and previously chief of staff to the former UK Prime Minister, Theresa May, and by John Batten, Global Cities Director at Arcadis. Um, Nicholas, let's talk a bit about the relationship between politics in cities and the private sector. Arguably, the private sector can sometimes offer longevity where politics can't. Uh, what, what I feel is that many of the politicians which are in office right now don't have a mind of themselves what they'd like to get done and what they'd like to be doing whilst they're in office, except for being in office uh, as a name itself. And this is a problem from my point of view, which is need to be changed. And this is probably why some eccentrics are getting voted in, because people are bored of people in power not getting their job done, except for simply being in an office. And as the private sector comes into the game, which is needed to get especially infrastructure problems that you have or challenges uh, to get solved, you need partners on the public sectors 
basis to be able to stay clear for more than just a couple of years, like four or five, which parliamentary legislative period takes to get larger scale infrastructure problems and projects realized. So this is much more something cities and probably countries have a need for. Gavin? In terms of the private sector, I think absolute vital role. There's no way to take net zero as an example. There is no way governments on their own are going to be able to afford to make the investments necessary to support the decarbonisation of our economy. They're going to need to work with the private sector. John, that surely is true that the private sector can get on with things in a way that the government can't. I mean, how do you then drive things at Arcadis to make sure that any social, societal, economic recovery that is needed, you can just get on with it? Yeah, but just building off of those points, I'm less cynical about how politicians are serving for their own political life. I think you know, Mayor Bloomberg served an unprecedented four terms. We've had Bill de Blasio for two terms. And an interesting transition happened between the two. Bloomberg was very private sector focused and really built a plan NYC, which was a blueprint for sustainable New York City moving forward. And it was a contentious uh, election where it was evident that the two mayors were not in love with each other. But Bill de Blasio emerged, took a look at Plan NYC, the sustainability plan for the city of New York, and said, I kind of like most of it, but there's two chapters which I'm going to write under my administration. One is around social inclusion or social equity, and the other one around the resilience of protecting the city of New York. Those two chapters were written, and then the plan was re repositioned into the market to attract private interest. It's now called One NYC 2050, Building a Strong and Fair City. And it's a Green New Deal for the city of New York. And it has so many interested private sector parties because without the private sector joining up and participating with the public sector, we're not going to make the progress we need to decarbonize the city of New York. You mentioned that the role of social equity and, and citizens coming in. I mean, to what degree, uh, Nicholas, are, are we seeing now as, as, as citizens being the agents for change? I mean, if you look out of the door here in London, well, you can hear a helicopter hovering over the head because Extinction Rebellion protesters are gumming up the British capital. They are demanding climate change action right now and they are determined to effectively compromise a city's ability to function in order to get things done. Well, you can't change cities against the people. You need to have them on your side to do changes. And uh, therefore, politics is a need for the people's support. But at one point or another, you have to probably convince the people from your position as a politician if you see things have to be done in contrary of the people's short-term interest you need to have them and you would like to do your job without them. <laughs> John, tell us a little bit more about what your thoughts are on the role of citizens in cities and their recoveries. I mean, there's two aspects, aren't there, when it comes to change. Firstly, the fact that now the private sector is increasingly aware that they must have a high ESG awareness, environmental, social and governance awareness in order to secure long-term investment and long-term trust from consumers. But we also have that growing number of people now who know that in the old days, 
when a developer or a planner would come along and just say, we're going to build an enormous set of flats here, we're going to have this great development, there was often the sense that they would come and wave the plans at you and then say, it's coming, here's your objections, but we're going to do it anyway. But that's is that changing at all? Is there more of a sense of, of social awareness by developers um, that they need to get communities on board if they're going to make it succeed? Because they know actually what, what they could end up with could be 10 times better than they ever imagined. Well, that's an interesting question. I'm not sure that there is as much social awareness in the commercial development community as in other listed companies around ESG compliance. But I do know that there is a much more of a conversation taking place in cities trying to balance the social value of a development versus the commercial returns that may be reaped from that investment. And I know in just about every major commercial real estate transaction, the discussion of affordability, the discussion of affordable housing set-asides for including projects as offsets or a part of the development are in active discussion to diversify the the product that comes to market. So I think there's a, a lot more of that tension being played out in front of the curtain rather than behind the curtain around balancing social value and commercial returns. Gavin, what brings us out of this political battlefield where we're fighting for the soul and the recovery of a city? Some people have argued it's trying to engender a shared sense of cultural identity. How much to to that would you agree to? I mean, you're always going to have political battles. You would hope at a city level there will at least be a shared consensus about the need for growth. You know, if, if a city is declining or struggling in some way, you would expect across the political divides, there to be some consensus about the need for action to address that. But, uh, you know, what would worry me at the moment is that our politics, I think not just in the UK, but in the US and and other parts of the democratic world as well, are changing in a way where the traditional left-right arguments about economics and the size of the state are being replaced by cultural divides and they may be a harder to bridge. John, when the pandemic struck, there was a real need for big government to step in, and now we have great holes in our city centres and in our smaller towns as well, where retail has died and there is nothing to bolster it back in again. Well, that's definitely the case in my blocks of Manhattan, where we have lots of vacancies, a very high uh, commercial vacancy rate for sure. And we're also dealing with a lot of e-commerce, last-mile delivery traffic congestion from all the packages that show up on our doorsteps every day. It really is an interesting challenge for the cities to balance return of bricks-and-mortar commercial real estate, which is really essential for the, the livelihood of a community in a neighborhood. But at the same time, we need to come to terms with the, the fact that the, the genie's out of the bottle and e-commerce purchasing habits are not going to go away. And Gavin, do you think that these emergencies and the changes that they affect in the way that we conduct our daily lives now and in the long future could have a long-term effect on, or indeed, changing our politics? We haven't really seen that much of a, a rise in, in the Green Party's voices at, across the world, have we? No, I mean, I think the the two crises are different in that regard. I think with COVID, you talked earlier about how it had sort of laid bare inequalities. I think it's actually made them worse in most places. So I think there is a big policy agenda that will flow from the COVID crisis. On the climate front, on net zero, in most parts of the world, the mainstream parties have basically adopted 
net zero positions. So there isn't the space for the Green Party that there might otherwise be. I mean, actually, if you, if you take the rebellion protesters that you were talking about earlier, their argument is that capitalism is killing the planet, whereas actually the mainstream parties are saying, no, actually what we need to do is reshape capitalism so that we use the market to decarbonize our economy and get the investment we need to do that. But I think the situation is in different in different countries. If you look at Germany, the Greens are a mainstream party. They're likely to be in the governing coalition after the next election that we've got in a few weeks' time. So the situation varies from country to country in terms of how prominent a role the Green Party plays. But environmental politics are absolutely centre stage now. Finally, gentlemen, a fix, if you wouldn't mind, something that we could all think about to make politics and cities work more harmoniously. Nicholas. Well, I guess we need all of them uh, working together on that issues because it's not um, one dimension that you got to deal with. It's got so many aspects and the more different capabilities you bring together, the better the solutions probably is. But you need a consensus on the goal that you have in mind. Consensus is what's needed, according to Nicholas. I think we're going to wish ourselves the best of luck for that one. Gavin, how about you? What's your What's your top tip? So my, my top pick would be more political power for cities to shape their own futures. And I think that would have two benefits. One, it'll give them more ability to adapt to their own unique position. The different cities face different challenges. But secondly, uh, if you look at it at a broader perspective, letting a thousand flowers bloom, letting individual cities experiment, we're more likely to find the right policy answers than if national governments try and mandate policies across their territories. So, Nicholas, you want more consensus. Gavin, you're arguing for more independence. John, if you could spot an opportunity for politics and cities, what would it be? Yeah, I can give you the 9-11 terrorist crisis that we experienced here in New York City on the World Trade Center. The response to that in building security, airport security, was unprecedented. Our interface with entering a building had a whole new level of security. Our attempt to enter into an airspace, a boarding area or a terminal, all had a whole new level of security. And I think society has truly benefited from that. I think the security of our cities has truly benefited from that. I think the same opportunity exists today coming out of the pandemic, Emma. I think we have the opportunity and the requirement to upgrade the way we screen for public health. Sicknesses, temperature checks, which we now have, I think should stay in place. And I think it'd be a good uh, call and response to the crisis like we did coming out of the 9-11. John Batten, Global Cities Director at Arcadis. Thank you. And thanks also to Nicholas Hill, the political consultant from Hamburg, and to Gavin Barwell, a strategic advisor to Arcadis and previously chief of staff to the former UK Prime Minister, Theresa May. Well, that brings us to the end of today's show. If you enjoyed it, then make sure you subscribe. Search Arcadis wherever you get your podcasts to hear the other episodes in this special series at MIPIM. And follow Arcadis on social media to find out more about what we do. For now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening.